This episode includes discussions of violence and racial discrimination that some listeners may find disturbing. Caution is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. Prince Gustav Franz Maria of Turin and Taxis was already awake when the Red Guards came for him. It was the morning of April 30th, 1919. The prince had been imprisoned in the small room at the Luitpold School in Munich for several days. He hoped that today his confinement would finally come to an end. The night before, the guards had allowed him and the other prisoners to write out their final wishes. He diligently penned a message to his family, though he doubted it would be delivered. More than likely, the communists would burn it all in the boiler. Still, the prince had hope. He'd spoken to the garrison's commandant and tried to make him see reason. Even now, he knew royals across Europe. His friends and family were rallying to secure his release. Soon, he'd be going home. The prince's resolve faltered when the guards grabbed his arms and dragged him from the room. As they marched him through the hallways, a pit grew in his stomach. Then, he heard the gunshots. The prince now understood what was happening. There would be no rescue. All the wealth and connections in the world wouldn't save him. He was a member of the Tula Society. In the eyes of the communists, he had to die. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second episode on the Tula Society a secret occult order that devised some of the most loathsome philosophical ideas behind Nazism. Last week, we covered the Tula Society's beginnings as an esoteric club and its shift into a radical paramilitary. This week, we'll dive into the Tula Society's role in the German Revolution, its absorption into the Nazi Party, and its mystical legacy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. 
the Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. You cover your head as you run from the exploding mortars, trying to protect your face and neck from the debris and falling glass. Potatoes spill out of your shopping bags as you trip over the bricks scattered in the street, but you don't stop to pick them up. You look back to see men staggering out of the firebombed building, kerchiefs over their mouths to filter out the smoke. A squad of red guards round the corner, Mauser rifles at the ready. You duck down an alley to avoid getting caught in the middle of the impending firefight. When you finally stop to catch your breath, you kneel to check your grocery bags. They're gone. The potatoes, the onions. You even lost an entire loop of sausage in the fray. From the small rations you had, nothing is left. You shake your head as you shuffle homeward. Dinner is ruined by yet another revolution in the streets of Munich. In early 1919, the German city of Munich was a mess. Less than a year before, it had become the capital of the new Bavarian Socialist Republic. But on February 21, 1919, a rejected applicant to the Tula Society killed its prime minister, Kurt Eisner. After that, the metropolis fell into chaos. Though socialists still held power in the city, disagreements with the communists and the anarchists soon led to skirmishes in the streets. Without Eisner, there was no clear and commanding head for the state, and no one to bring the fighting in check. On April 6th, a month and a half after Eisner died, a coalition of anarchists and communists declared Bavaria a new Soviet republic. Its leader would be a playwright named Ernst Tola. But Tola's republic, an ineffective disaster, lasted all of six days. So, on April 12th, the German Communist Party seized control and elected Russian-born revolutionary Eugen Levinay as its leader. Levinay wasted no time transforming Bavaria into a Bolshevik-style militant communist state. He seized money and assets from private citizens and requisitioned the upper-class's homes to give to workers. He raised a red army of laborers and peasants. He even took aristocrats and wealthy capitalists as hostages of the new government. Amidst this turmoil, Rudolf von Zibottendorf and his Tula Society were hard at work in the shadows. As hardline German nationalists, they disliked Eisner's socialist republic, but loathed the new communist rule. Tulists took two approaches in their fight against communism in Munich. First, they recruited and trained a paramilitary unit called the Kampfbund, or Tula Combat League. The Kampfbund was established with the blessing of Weimar Republic officials. Tulists secretly trained their soldiers in the town of Eching, a suburb outside of Munich. When the time was right, they planned to join forces with other paramilitaries, or Freikorps, and march on the city. But until the fighting units were ready, the Tulists had to focus on their second strategy, a clandestine campaign within Munich's walls. Zabotendorf established a wing of the Kampfbund as Tula's own personal intelligence service. 
headed by a 17-year-old lieutenant named Edgar Krauss, the Tula intelligence agents disguised themselves as unassuming stenographers and clerks. They infiltrated the new Soviet government and the ranks of the Red Guards, the military police that patrolled the city streets. On one occasion, they snuck into Schleisheim airfield just north of Munich and disabled all the Soviets' cars and planes. While Krauss and his agents sabotaged the Soviets from the inside, the rest of the Tulists prepared for an insurrection. Members like Rudolf Hess bought weapons on the black market and stockpiled them in the society's suite at the Four Seasons Hotel. The Tula Society's headquarters became a magnet for all the capitalists, nationalists, and folkish supporters left in Munich. While the communist government was new, it wasn't stupid. The Tulists operated in utmost secrecy, but it wasn't long before the Soviets planned a raid. Before they could strike, Zabotendorf and other Tulists caught word of the crackdown and fled Munich. Many wore disguises, posing as communists or railroad workers to escape suspicion. However, some weren't so lucky. On April 26, 1919, the Red Guard stormed the Tula Society's rooms at the Four Seasons. They arrested seven Tulists on suspicion of counter-revolutionary activity. The prisoners included Tula co-founder Walter Nauhaus, Countess Heila von Westharp, and Prince Gustav Franz Maria of Turn and Taxis. The communists imprisoned them at a Munich high school gymnasium. And the next day, on April 27th, the Red Guards plastered the city with posters, declaring their victory. But rather than recognize the Tulists as political prisoners and give legitimacy to their cause, the Red Guards painted them as bourgeois criminals. The flyers falsely claimed that the detainees were aristocrats who grew rich off the revolution. They said that the Tulists had copied official stamps and used them to confiscate food, automobiles, and millions of paper marks from workers. They were a scourge, and the Red Guard bravely took them down. If someone read the Soviet government's propaganda, they'd think they were an undefeatable conquering force. But in reality, the Soviet government had a shaky grasp on Munich. They'd only been in control for a few weeks, and already Weimar-backed Freikorps were marching on the city. The mood at the school was abysmal. Posters covered the hallways, warning the communists that their enemies had placed a 30-mark bounty on each of the Red Guard's heads. Though we don't have concrete records, it's likely that in this atmosphere, prisoners were subject to poor conditions and abuse from their jailers. But the worst was yet to come. After word reached the city that the Freikorps had executed communists in the countryside, the Soviet government took drastic action. They announced that they would kill five of their bourgeoisie hostages for every one of the communists murdered. And on April 30th, they carried out their threat. Red guards escorted the seven Tulists to the interior courtyard of the gymnasium. Three other prisoners accompanied them, two captured Freikorps soldiers and a Jewish dissident. Fritz Seidel, the commandant in charge of Luitpold, ordered his men to load their rifles and assemble a firing squad. Jeers rang out from the school. Nearly 200 Red Guards and their guests ringed the quad, whooping and shouting for the slaughter to come. Two by two, the prisoners entered the courtyard. They turned to face either the firing squad or the wall behind them. The communists raised their rifles, sighted their targets, and fired. 
While the communists intended the executions to inspire fear in their enemies, they only succeeded in creating martyrs for the Weimar government, the Freikorps, and the Tula Society to rally around. The public was outraged at the slayings, especially because among those killed were aristocrats, civil servants, and a woman. Munich citizens rose up against the Soviet government, led by the Tulis, who remained in the city. Outside, Freikorps, loyal to the Weimar government, surrounded Munich. Fearing for their lives, Red Guards abandoned their posts. The Freikorps invaded the city on May 1st, and by May 3rd, Munich was once again under Weimar control. Though its citizens didn't know it yet, the upheaval in Munich created the perfect breeding ground for a new, dark political body. Shaken by a year's worth of chaos and violence, Munich citizens had become extremely anti-communist and suspicious of socialism. The city was leaning right towards nationalism and authoritarianism. And during this uncertain time, something happened that planted the first seeds of a sinister ideology. On September 12, 1919, the Bavarian army sent an intelligence officer named Adolf Hitler to spy in a meeting of the German Workers' Party, a political offshoot of the Tula Society. Listening to their rhetoric, which espoused German nationalism and anti-Semitism, Hitler found himself agreeing with the men he was supposed to surveil. Rather than report his findings back to his superiors, Hitler joined the movement. And less than a year later, the group would have a new name, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Up next, the Nazi Party absorbs the Tula Society. Listeners, here's a new show I can't wait for you to check out. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. As Weimar forces took Munich back from the communists, announcements rang out across the city. They spoke of driving communist pretenders out, how all remaining Reds cowered in the sewers. They warned the innocent to remain in their homes and not to get in the way of their hunt. Freikorps marched through the streets, shooting hundreds of suspected communists. 
many of whom were ordinary civilians in the wrong place at the wrong time. When the bloodshed ended a few weeks later, Munich's citizens must have felt like they'd aged decades. Still, they tried their best to return to their normal lives. And the Tula Society did the same. They registered with the Weimar Municipal Government on June 20, 1919, claiming they were a literary discussion group. Though Tulis had led the fight against socialists and communists from inside the city, they decided to maintain the secrecy they'd cultivated. But the scars of the revolution still lingered. Many Tulists blamed Rudolf von Sebottendorf, the group's founder, for the assassination of the seven members at Luitpold Gymnasium. They believed he could have stopped the communists from seizing their membership record, which had let them identify the seven they'd killed. On June 22, 1919, Zabottendorf and the society went their separate ways. He left for Switzerland and eventually moved back to his beloved Turkey. Without Zabottendorf, the core branch of the Tula Society declined in membership and fervor. However, another was just beginning to blossom. Before the chaos of the revolution, Tulist Karl Hara ran the Workers' Ring of the Tula Society, a discussion group dedicated to merging labor rights with folkish and anti-Semitic ideals. Early in 1919, Hara and a train worker named Anton Drexler met at a Munich tavern called Furstenfeldehof. By the time they left, they'd founded a new political unit, the German Workers' Party. The group was small for its first few months, probably no more than 40 people, but its name was enough to get the attention of the German army, the Reichswehr. Fearing another socialist or communist uprising, the army investigated any political group with words like worker in its title. So on September 12th, they sent a 30-year-old corporal, Adolf Hitler, to spy on the German Workers' Party. The meeting in question was a beer hall lecture by German economist and anti-Semite Gottfried Feda. Though Hitler was unimpressed by the group's turnout, he appreciated their focus on German nationalism and their hatred towards Jewish people. During Feta's lecture, one of the assembled members took issue with something he said. The disgruntled listener declared Bavaria should break off from Germany and form its own country with Austria. In response, Hitler stood up and delivered a fiery diatribe against the man. Hitler's passion struck Drexler. He knew his group lacked the charismatic spokesperson it needed to move beyond the back rooms of beer halls. He felt that if he could get this nationalist from Austria to join them, then the German Workers' Party could become a force to be reckoned with. Barely a month later, Hitler was speaking in front of crowds on behalf of the party. He refined his manic oratorial style, shouting with passion and churning his audiences into a frenzy. At each lecture, he railed against the same things, capitalists, communists, and his greatest enemy, the Jewish people. On February 24, 1920, the group changed its name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Though they'd arisen from the anti-socialist Tula Society, the party believed that changing their name would attract more laborers. And it did. In July 1921, Hitler was elected the sole leader of the party. He spent the next decade amassing political power for himself. 
And finally, on January 30, 1933, the party's dreams came to fruition when Adolf Hitler was elected Chancellor of Germany. The official Tula Society most likely dissolved sometime in 1925, but its ideas and some of its members lived on in the new Nazi party. The party borrowed many symbols and ideas that may sound familiar to our audience. Like the Tulists, they adopted the swastika. They dedicated themselves to anti-Semitism and German nationalism. But unlike the Tulists, they were less interested in the occult. However, there were still dedicated Tulists at the heart of the Nazi party. A society member and folkish playwright named Dietrich Eckhart was part of the original German Workers' Party and became a close friend and mentor to Adolf Hitler. Hitler even dedicated a volume of his memoir, Mein Kampf, to Eckhart. Eckhart was a vehement anti-Semite, and his writings inspired many of Hitler's most cruel, treacherous policies. Before the Nazis came to power, Eckhart published a widely popular and deeply anti-Semitic paper called Auf Gut Deutsch, or in plain German. In his editorials, he blamed Jewish people for all of Germany's problems and claimed they had too much political and economic power. In the early days of the Nazi party, Eckhart introduced the future tyrant to the upper-class nationalists who lived in Munich, helping Hitler make valuable social connections. During one of these meetings, Hitler met a writer for Auf Gut Deutsch, another Tulist named Alfred Rosenberg. Rosenberg famously brought the notorious anti-Semitic text, The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, from Russia to Germany. In both the Tula Society and later the Nazi Party, he was a proponent of Aryan superiority and Jewish inferiority. He wrote many of the ideological texts that the Nazi Party used for their race laws. On a personal level, Rosenberg tried to integrate the occult, folkloric beliefs of the Tula Society into the Nazi Party. He believed that Aryans originally came from Atlantis and Germans were their direct descendants. One of Rosenberg's pet projects was to create a new religion, a German church that would replace all other faiths in modern Germany. He found Christianity too closely tied to Judaism. Instead, he wanted to base this new church in Aryan ideals, borrowed from the stories and sagas of the Nordic gods. And one other Tulist went even further. For some time, Rudolf Hess was Adolf Hitler's most trusted confidant. Formerly a Tulist who'd smuggled arms during the revolution, he was another of Hitler's direct mentors and deputy Führer of the Nazi Empire. Hess was one of the highest-ranking members of the Nazi party and an ardent occultist. He often met with astrologers, fortune-tellers, and psychics. While Hitler embraced the racial and national philosophy of the Tulists, he preferred to distance himself from magic and mysticism. Perhaps in the beginning, it was a way to ensure that outsiders took the Nazi party seriously. But in 1941, Hitler's indifference evolved to contempt. He outlawed most occult practices. This was in retaliation for something he hadn't seen coming, treason. On May 10, 1941, sometime after 10.30 p.m., a German plane crashed in a field near Streven, Scotland. When a farmer went to investigate the crash, he discovered a man in a blue Luftwaffe uniform, claiming he was a lost German pilot named Alfred Hahn. 
In reality, Alfred Hahn was a pseudonym adopted by Rudolf Hess to evade capture. Though it's unclear exactly what prompted Hess's flight to England, the commonly accepted explanation is that the deputy Führer took it upon himself to broker a peace accord on behalf of the Reich. He was concerned that England would launch an assault on the Western Front while Germany was still dealing with the chaos of fighting Russia. But rather than go through official channels, Hess slipped out of Germany without telling Hitler. Hitler was furious at this betrayal. He believed Hess's flight made his leadership look splintered and weak. In his mind, if he couldn't control his own deputy, how could he dominate the world? To mitigate the potential political fallout, the Nazis declared Hess mentally unstable. In public, the party blamed Hess's obsession with the occult for his harebrained scheme. Now, the party likely made this up because Hitler didn't want England to know that Hess had hoodwinked him, but it does have some seeds of truth. Hess reportedly planned his flight for May 10th because his astrologer had said it was an auspicious date. Angry with anyone associated with the former deputy Führer, Hitler ordered the Gestapo to carry out a crackdown on occultists throughout the German Empire. The Gestapo arrested hundreds of clairvoyants, astrologers, and fortune-tellers. They even jailed Ernst Schulte Strauthaus, one of Hess's mystical consultants. The Nazis released some of these prisoners within days, but others remained in custody for years, some until the Allies liberated them at the war's end. On June 24, 1941, the Nazi propaganda ministry banned all services and performances by astrologers, clairvoyants, telepaths, spiritualists, and occultists. Ultimately, Hitler and the Nazi party rejected the esoteric beliefs that had shaped their rise. And still, the Tula Society's story wasn't over yet. Even after the Allies defeated Nazi Germany and the Tulists had long since died, their order's mythos lived on. Up next, the Nazis' fall from power and the Tula Society's legacy. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. Rudolf von Sabotendorf didn't have an easy life after he resigned from the Tula Society in 1919. Cut off from his Munich friends, he focused his energies on mysticism. He traveled around Germany and Switzerland for a year or two, writing books on astrology, Freemasonry, and occultism. At some point between 1924 and 1926, he relocated to Turkey. He used the country that had provided him with so much opportunity as a home base for the next decade and a half, while he traveled and researched more mystic practices. But despite his work, he couldn't help but watch with irritation as his ideas swept through Germany without him. So in 1933, Zabotendorf returned to Munich. Though the Tula Society had disbanded in 1925, he once again organized occultist meetings, lecturing friends at the group's old rooms in the Four Seasons. 
On July 25th, the organization officially announced it had been reborn. Later that year, Zibotendorf published a book called Before Hitler Came, Documents from the Early Years of the Nazi Movement. In it, Zabotendorf outlined the Tula Society's beliefs and role in the Munich Revolution. His thesis was that the order had created the German National Socialists and molded Hitler into the leader he ultimately became. The book did not make Zabotendorf any more popular. The Nazi party had become such a cult of personality that members claimed the text was a thinly veiled attack on the Fuhrer. They believed Zabotendorf was challenging Hitler as the originator of Nazism. On September 13, 1933, the Reich Ministry of the Interior sent an alert to the Bavarian police. The memo claimed that Zabotendorf was a political imposter. Weeks later, the authorities placed the Tula Society under surveillance and closely monitored Zabotendorf's movements. Sometime around February 12, 1934, the Bavarian police arrested Zabotendorf. Just weeks later, the government banned his book because it undermined the Nazis' authority. Shortly thereafter, the revitalized society dissolved again. That's where the trail of Rudolf von Zabotendorf, the founder of the Tula Society, goes cold. According to historian David Lurson, rumors abound as to what happened to the occultist afterward. Some say he never made it out of prison and was executed as an enemy of the state. But other accounts suggest that Germany released Zabotendorf to Turkey. Back in his adopted homeland, Germany's intelligence service allegedly gave Zabotendorf a job as a secret agent. His commander, Herbert Rittlinga, claimed the old man was kind and intelligent, but not a very good spy. Rittlinga suspected that he was placed there because of his connections with higher-ups in the Nazi party, not due to any special reconnaissance or espionage skill. When Turkey kicked the German consulate out of Istanbul in 1944, Rittlinga left the country. No other first-person accounts exist of Zabotendorf's whereabouts after 1944. There are many reports that are quite possibly true, but can't be substantiated. One story says that Zabotendorf was murdered somewhere in Turkey, but according to Rittlinga, he heard that Zabotendorf threw himself into the Bosphorus Strait on May 9, 1945, two days after Germany surrendered to the Allies. A few years later, the most prominent remaining Tulis would be executed for their crimes as Nazi leaders. The German defeat spelled not only the end of state-sponsored Nazism, but also the end of the racist dream of a German nation. The Allies enacted a program they called denazification, in which they tried to eradicate the influence of Hitler's party from German culture. The courts tried Nazi war criminals and removed party members from positions of power, both in the government and in the private sector. Nationalism, anti-Semitism, and folkish thought became, if not absent from German politics, then profoundly unpopular. But in the aftermath, the Tula Society gained a new notoriety. This was mostly thanks to the rise of alternative history following the war. Beginning in the 1960s, several writers posited that occultism was not merely a passion of some high-ranking Nazis, but the driving force of the entire Third Reich. Allegedly, Hitler came to power due to the influence of mystical and supernatural artifacts, spells, or demons. 
Writers like Louis Poels and Jacques Bergier have accused the Tula Society of being the channel through which black magic influenced the party. They claimed Tulis were powerful, evil magicians. In their 1960 book, The Morning of the Magicians, Poels and Bergier claimed that Tulis, like Dietrich Eckhart and politician Karl Hausefa, believed they could become supernatural intermediates. They'd connect the realm of men and the great ones of the ancient world, unleashing mystical forces to aid in German domination. Of course, this assertion looks thin after you realize that Karl Haushofer didn't belong to the Tula Society, and there's no evidence that Eckhart tried, or even believed he could try, to be a medium between ancient arcane forces and Nazi Germany. But it was too late. The Tula Society had already earned a reputation in alternative history circles as a coven of magical Nazis. German crypto-historian Dietrich Branda alleged that the Tula Society established a link to hidden Buddhist orders in Tibet, who practice arcane Eastern mysticism. Other authors even link the Tulists to Satanism. Perhaps the most famous claim, and the one that's had the most influence on popular culture, comes from writer Trevor Ravenscroft. In Ravenscroft's 1972 book, The Spear of Destiny, he claimed that Eckhart was a student of the occult and persuaded the Tula Society to invoke ancient spirits of darkness. Allegedly, Tulis practiced human sacrifice under the cover of the Munich Revolution, seizing communists and Jewish people from the streets and ritualistically murdering them. And most damningly, Ravenscroft alleged that Eckhart helped Hitler open himself up to Lucifer to become the vessel for the Antichrist on Earth. Needless to say, that probably didn't happen. In fact, Ravenscroft completely made up all his assertions in The Spear of Destiny. When he'd published the book in 1972, he claimed his source was Walter Stein, an Austrian philosopher who'd studied the Holy Grail. But in 1982, an investigative reporter discovered that Ravenscroft had never met Stein. Ravenscroft responded that he'd interviewed Stein's spirit through a medium. We cannot contact Stein's ghost ourselves, so we can't verify this claim, but for obvious reasons, his explanation remains suspect. Even so, Ravenscroft popularized the Tula Society and the Nazi Party's reputations as obsessed occultists. But perhaps this isn't just because a few writers wanted to sell their books. People may have a good reason for wanting to believe some of the alternative history. Hitler's Third Reich killed millions of people, some soldiers, some civilians. Most agonizingly, it decimated entire innocent populations. Romani people, Slavic people, people with disabilities, queer-identifying people, and six million Jewish people. Perhaps crypto-historians and their readers turn to the occult to explain the atrocities of the Nazis. It can be comforting to think that such evil came from dark spirits or magical sources, rather than the hearts and minds of humans like you and me. But in truth, that's who carries out genocides and destroys lives, humans. We're responsible, and crafting any other narrative is irresponsible. Sure, we fear the unknown, the faces of the old gods, the demons that lurk in darkness. But sometimes the scariest stories hold a mirror up to our nature, and the most terrible monsters look 
just like us. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Tula Society, amongst the many sources we used, we found Hammer of the Gods by David Lurson and The Occult Roots of Nazism by Nicholas Goodrick Clark, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.